This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So happy to see you all again. Uh, my name is Sergio Lanata. We met last week. I'm happy to see you back to learn a little bit more about the neurodegenerative diseases. Um, I think we had a pretty good first session where we were able to provide you with an overview of the neurodegenerative diseases, distinguish between the different diseases of the brain and the clinical syndromes they cause, give you a big picture view of how we think about neurodegenerative diseases. Um, I think we had a pretty good discussion also to kick things off. Today we're going to start to narrow things down a little bit. I've invited my uh, colleague, Dr. George Nassan. Um, he is the director of our clinical services in the UCSF Memory and Aging Center, a dear colleague of mine, and he's going to uh, give you a, a, a more detailed view, overview of a specific disease, Alzheimer's disease, which you learned last time we met is the most common neurodegenerative disease worldwide. And he's going to delve into the pathology and then the clinical syndromes this disease causes. And after his lecture, we're going to have an interactive question and answer session with uh, with him, as well as two uh, invited guests from the Memory and Aging Center, Dr. Leah Grinberg, who uh, leads our neuropathology department, or neuropathology core, and um, Dr. Lajoy, uh, Renaud Lajoy, who is a neuroscientist, a researcher that is really spending his time thinking about all of the tests that we can order to diagnose Alzheimer's disease in life, specifically the PET scans. Okay? So without further ado, I introduce my colleague, Dr. Nassan. Take care. All right. Thank you, everybody. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. I think this is the first time that I talk to a group of people that aren't medical students or physicians, so <laughs> I hope I, I do a good job. Uh, so we're going to talk today about Alzheimer's disease, and I'm going to start with a story. So um, on November 25th in 1901, so that's more than 100 years ago, Karl, who was a German office clerk, brought his wife, Auguste, who was 51 years old at the time, to a mental institution in Frankfurt, Germany. He was having a difficult time taking care of her at home and um, said that she had started having memory difficulties a few years prior. He also described that she was having paranoid uh, delusions, feelings of jealousy, thinking that he is uh, sleeping with other women. She was um, convinced that there, was, there were people out there trying to kill her, and she also had difficulty speaking and verbalizing her thoughts and her ideas. Uh, she was described as having some auditory hallucinations, hearing things that, that when nobody was speaking, and also unpredictable behavior. And that night, the physician on call who examined her was named Alois Alzheimer. He was 27 years old. And this is, this is a picture of Auguste. It was taken uh, about a year after... Um, uh, or maybe a drawing, actually, I'm not sure, but it was, it was um, documented to be a year after she was admitted. And interestingly, uh, not necessarily with that picture, but some of the notes from Dr. Alzheimer, the night that he admitted her, said that she sat on the bed with a helpless expression. And it's just interesting that this was the picture captured of her. Um, these are some of the notes from Alzheimer's um, of his conversation with this patient. He asked her, what is your name? And she answered, Auguste. Last name? Auguste. What is your husband's name? August, I think. Your husband? Ah, my husband. And then she looks as if she didn't understand the question. So these are all from his notes. Uh, 
Are you married to Augusta? Mrs. D? Yes, yes, Augusta D, which was her, her name. How long have you been here? She seems to be trying to remember. Three weeks. What is this? And I show her a pencil, and she answers a pen. What did I show you? I don't know. I don't know. It's difficult, isn't it? So anxious. So anxious. So this were some of the notes. That there was more, but this was some, some extracts of the notes of that first dialogue um, that, that Alzheimer's had with with Auguste. And then he, she passed away in, on April 8th of 1906, so about five years after she was admitted to the institution. And, and Alois Alzheimer asked for her brain and uh, described some of the findings that he, he found under the microscope um, in, in, her, in the brain cells. And he described what we now know, which we're going to talk about later, as neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid plaques, um, which have become the pathologic hallmark of this disease. And the actual term Alzheimer's disease wasn't coined until 1910, so a few years after, um, by, by another uh, psychiatrist in the Handbook of Psychiatry. And these are the drawings um, from, from Alzheimer's, and I, I will show you later sort of what actually these look like under a microscope in reality. So um, we're going to cover a few things today. We're going to talk about how does Alzheimer's disease present itself when it affects people and how, what are the different symptoms that they can manifest? You know, how, how, do, they, how do they present to us in clinic? And, and we will see that there are different ways in which Alzheimer's disease can manifest itself. These are four of the most common ways. So it could be a memory syndrome, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, visual syndrome, a language syndrome, or a frontal lobe syndrome, and we'll talk about that. And then we will dive a little bit uh, into neuropathology just to discuss these findings that, that Alois Alzheimer's described. We'll talk about some of the genetic factors of the disease, and then we will finish by some of the modern biomarkers or sort of techniques to test for this uh, disease um, in our current day and age. Um, so it, supposing that you know, this is one person in the span of their life from, say, 30, when they're 30 years old and they're healthy and nothing's going on to when they are 90 and maybe they have Alzheimer's disease. You know, it seems that there is, there's a gradual progression of Alzheimer's disease where it starts affecting the brain way before we actually can detect any sign. And we call this the asymptomatic sort of phase of Alzheimer's disease. And then they may start uh, showing up in people's thinking, uh, memory, behavior, etc. But they could be mild enough, and we'll discuss what that means, you know, and we call them mild cognitive impairment, or they could be more progressed and cause people to be dependent on others for their well-being and their day-to-day life, and then we call that dementia. So mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, is describes really a clinical state where a person has cognitive or behavioral decline, of any cause, really, but it's specifically here, Alzheimer's disease, um, that does not significantly interfere with independent living. So these are people who maybe they forget, but they can continue to take care of themselves, remember to take their medications, they can shop and cook and pay bills and take care of their hygiene, etc. Um, and as opposed to this, the term dementia describes a clinical state where we do have cognitive or behavioral decline, again, of any cause, but this time it does significantly interfere with a person's independence in completing their day-to-day -day function. And so they become progressively more reliant on family, loved ones, uh, hired caregivers in order to provide different levels of cares that they need. 
So really, it's important to understand that not every person who has dementia or MCI necessarily has Alzheimer's disease. So both these terms, MCI and dementia, are just clinical terms, and a lot of things can cause them. Uh, and also, not every person with mild cognitive impairment necessarily will progress to have dementia. So we have all of the possibilities. You know, you, we, a person can be clinically asymptomatic, they can have mild cognitive impairment, or they can have dementia. One may progress to the other, but not necessarily. All right, so um, we're going we're gonna to start diving a little bit more into Alzheimer's disease and how it manifests itself. So I'll talk in a little bit about the pathology of Alzheimer's disease that you see um, on the left side. Um, but let us focus first on the clinical syndromes, which, which means the, the, the way that the disease manifests itself in humans. So these are, like I said earlier, the four most common syndromes. And the first one, which we're going to start talking about, the memory syndrome is probably the one that is considered the most typical or classical Alzheimer's disease manifestation. And when, when people in the community say Alzheimer's disease, usually this is what they think of. They think of memory loss. Um, and I would like to start, this is a poem that I love by Emily Dickinson. This is even before Alois Alzheimer's sort of described these findings. It's in the 1800s. But it's really interesting to me how she describes what, could be, what, could, what, what we could feel when we have memory problems. So I'm just going to read it real quick. A thought went up my mind today that I have had before, but did not finish. Some way back, I could not fix the year, nor where it went, nor why it came. The second time to me, nor definitely what it was, have I the art to say. But somewhere in my soul, I know, I've met the thing before. It just reminded me, twas all, and came my way no more. So let me start talking about memory syndrome. So people who have this typical or classical, what we call amnestic uh, manifestation of Alzheimer's disease, their first sign usually is a sign of short-term memory loss, meaning that they start forgetting things that happened recently, not long ago, last week, three weeks ago, this morning. Um, and as the disease progressed, that time delay might become shorter and shorter, where they might forget a conversation that just happened an hour ago or something that someone said 10 minutes ago. Uh, typically, the memories for things that occurred long time ago remain preserved, um, sometimes to even a later stage of the disease. However, we, we do know that, that the, uh, the past can start marching backwards in the sense that people start recalling more vividly things progressively from earlier and earlier period of their times. In fact, some patients, when they progress, they might start recalling very vivid memories from when they were at school or children, etc. So the way that, that um, it manifests itself is that people may forget events that they went to, they may forget conversations, they may repeat stories, tell you something that they have already just told you or that they told you three days ago. They can misplace their belongings because they forget where they put something down and they go to look for it. Over time, other... Uh, symptoms might arise that are not necessarily related to memory. So they might start having difficulty navigating and getting lost. And this is a combination of not recalling where things are in their, in their internal map, but also having some visual problems. And we'll talk a little bit about visual spatial difficulties in Alzheimer's disease in a little bit. It can also progress to include language difficulties, forgetting words that they used to be able to say. Uh, it may affect behavior. Some people may become anxious. Other people might become more detached. Um, and 
late in the disease, you know, other cognitive domain might be affected as well, such as executive functions, problem solving, etc. <clears throat> so when the classical or typical Alzheimer's disease occurs, we believe that, that the, the memory is happening because the, the disease is affecting a very particular part of the brain called the hippocampus, which on this cartoon, you can see it right here. Um, and this is an MRI of a, of a patient that doesn't have the disease. You can see the hippocampus is nice and plumb. You know, it's, it's, it's that gray rounded area and it fills, um, it's quite big and bulky. And I'll, and I'll show you in a little bit what it looks like in disease. But was, I really like the word hippocampus. It's a little bit um, um, interesting how it's named. So it's named after a seahorse. So this is, if you take this out, it looks like that. And because it looks so much like a seahorse, you know, hippocampus is seahorse in Greek. Um, and and in, in patients who have Alzheimer's disease, the hippocampus might really lose a lot of volume because brain cells are dying as time goes by. And so instead of having that sort of really nice and plump hippocampus, you might have a space um, in the place where it's supposed to be, and you may not see a hippocampus any longer. <clears throat> so... This, is, this was, in summary, sort of the presentation of somebody with primary memory problem. Now, people with Alzheimer's disease may also present with primary difficulties with visual processing, not necessarily affecting their memory. And this is a syndrome that is currently known as posterior cortical atrophy. Uh, and some people refer to it as the posterior variant of Alzheimer's disease. So in, in these people, uh, usually the disease presents earlier for reasons we don't understand. So they are younger, maybe in their early 60s or late 50s. The first sign and symptom of this is impairment in visual processing. They start having difficulty locating things in space. They may open a fridge to look for the milk and, you know, there's a lot of things in the fridge and they're not able to visually process, you know, where, where the carton of milk is located in the fridge. Um, they may have difficulty with sizes of things. So go to fetch, I don't know, a big glass or mug and they fetch a smaller one. Um, or placement of how to put, uh, you know, the table placement. They also may have difficulty navigating their own space. So a room like this would be very difficult to navigate for somebody with this type of Alzheimer's disease. Because if to be able to, like, go through where is the door and on which side I have to go and how do I like not bump into people, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, they may also have difficulty recognizing faces or objects. Um, and so these patients may earlier in the course of the disease have difficulty recognizing family members um, or famous people on television. Over time, the disease may progress to then include memory problems, and then it can later on start to look the same like the Alzheimer's, like the amnestic form of Alzheimer's disease. So, but most of the time in the first two or three years, it's primarily a visual problem for these patients. Um, these patients are the, the least likely to not have, uh, I'm sorry, to uh, to not have insight into their disease, which means out of all the people with Alzheimer's disease, they are the ones that recognize the most that there is a problem going on and that they are unable to manage their space. And, and some people believe that because of that, but also maybe other factors related to where the illness is attacking, you know, they may be very depressed or very anxious. Um, this is a picture that we often show our patients in order to determine how well they are processing 
visual cues and stimuli. So we ask them to describe to us what's going on in the picture. And as you can see, there's a lot going on in this picture, right? There's water running. You know, the mom has her back turned to her kids who are maybe stealing you know, cookies from a cookie jar. And, and this would be the way that you would want somebody to describe that picture. But people with this type of Alzheimer's disease may actually not be able to do that because they may not be able to tend to all of the visual uh, stimuli going on at the same time. They may be able to describe one thing. I've had patients just describe what's outside the window and not talk at all about what is happening inside the kitchen. So, um, so the, this, is, this is one way in which we can test this at the bedside. And in people with this type of Alzheimer's disease, it affects a very different part of the brain, which is the posterior part of the brain. So let me orient you a little bit. This is an MRI of a person with this uh, type of Alzheimer's disease. And this is the, the, the front of the head, and this is the back, imagining, them, imagining that they are laying down on, on the scanner on the table, and you are looking through their feet, not through the top of the head, but through their feet. So this is the right side, this is the left side, this is the front, and this is the back. And, and we are starting at the very top of the brain, the very top of the head. And you see here, if you just compare the front to the back, you see that there's a lot of these black spaces in the back that don't exist in the front. The front is mostly comprised of brain that is nice and full and plump and gray. And the back is a lot of um, deep spaces that are black, like the one that I'm showing here or here or here. This is a part of the brain that's called the parietal lobe, and it is responsible for a lot of our visual processing, but also some other things like math and calculation. It plays a role in language, and it plays some other roles in sensory, um, how we feel things, etc. And, and you notice how much volume loss there is in the back part of the brain, whereas the remaining brain looks more or less okay. This is the hippocampus here. Um, it's a different cut than the one I showed you earlier, but it is relatively slightly more plump than what we expect for somebody with Alzheimer's disease. And so the main problem is here in the posterior part. All right, so so far, two, two different ways it presents and two different parts of the brain that are being affected. The language syndrome what is referred to as logopinic variant of Alzheimer's disease, is a third way in which Alzheimer's disease can present itself. It also tends to occur mostly in younger people. And the first sign is a language difficulty. And specifically, people have a really hard time coming up with words in spontaneous speech. They would be talking, and then all of a sudden they blank on a word. They may try to talk around it. Like if they were to say a hanger, they might say... You know, the thing that, that it, it goes in the closet and then you, you, you put your, your clothes on it and they just they blank on the word and they say all of these things around the word. Um, the, the exact process that is being impaired in these uh, patients is that they have a really hard time with anything that comprises the sounds of language. And to explain that to you a little bit, let me invite you to think a little bit about language with me. Language is a very abstract concept right? The, who decided that if I say the, the sound door, you know, that means something to us, you know, it's, it's the door that we open to enter a place. And if I say the sound, that's not, that's nothing, you know, it doesn't mean anything, but that's still a sound, you know, we, it's a very abstract concept. We, we have learned since we were young that these particular sounds are associated with a particular meaning or concept. And, and there is a, a part in our brain that is responsible 
at all times to sift through all the sounds that you get from your environment and allow you to differentiate between ambient sound and language sounds. And then once you are able to process all of that, you then attach the meaning to each of the sounds. And that's how language even starts to be processed in the brain. And there are other parts that sort of take over for you to you know, add the richness and texture of what it is that you are being told, how you're going to respond to it, etc. So these are other things that we're not going to cover today. But that initial process of, of understanding the sounds of language is what's being affected in these patients. And so that's why they start blanking on words, because they can't hear them. They cannot hear what they sound like. And also they start having difficulty listening to people talk, especially if they are being told something that's really long, because it's, there's, it's way more sounds, right? So if, if I were to tell you, get out, this, these are two, two sounds, two syllables. It's way easier to process than if I say... Um, make sure to get ready. We are going now for dinner. We're going to be late. It starts at 8 p.m. This is a lot of sounds that the brain now has to process. So for people who have this variant of Alzheimer's disease, they would have a really hard time with these long sentences as opposed to shorter sentences. <clears throat> as, as the disease progresses, they may have more and more difficulty with language so that their communication might be really impaired. Some patients do, do become sort of close to mute or, or unable to really provide any meaningful conversation. Um, early on, it might also affect calculation faculty because we're going to see this is in the part of the brain that's close to where we process sounds of language. Um, and then they may start developing more visual problems similar to the, first, to the group that I showed you uh, uh, right before this one. These patients probably also have a lot of memory problems that might be hard to detect because if you cannot speak, we may not have an opportunity to know that you forgot something because it, it may not come up in a conversation. And let me show you just a video of a patient that has this. And, and this is a test that we give to these patients in order to see how they're processing the sounds of language. The test is really simple. We ask them to repeat a sentence. And repeating a sentence does not require you to really understand it. All that it requires you to do is to be able to process the sounds of that sentence and reproduce these sounds. And so people may not be able to understand what they're saying, uh, but they may still be able to repeat it. However, uh, uh, people with this variant of Alzheimer's disease have a really hard time. So let me just play this real quick. Can you repeat this phrase? Um, today was a warm and sunny day. Today was a wonder and funny day. <laughs> and Sunday, that's what it was. Today was a warm and sunny day. Sunday, right. Can you repeat that again? Yes, it was. It said that today was a sun, was oh God, summer and huh. maybe trying to go too fast. It's tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Let's start with something easier. How about today is Monday? Monday. Today is Monday. Mm -hmm. How about uh, the flowers were in the park? The flowers were in the park. So in the, in the in the uh... All right. So you notice how he's really struggling with these sounds, even when those sentences were relatively sort of simple. Um, and what's interesting, and if you notice, there were some errors in the words that he, he made. They sounded like what she was saying, but they were not the right words. You know, he said summer 
uh, as opposed to sunny day. And this is an error that often these patients make because as they are searching for the sounds, other sounds you know, are being grasped in the brain and they're going there. So this is to show you where in the brain this is. So again, I'm going to reorient to like we did the first time. This is the top, the, the front of the, of, the, of the head, or actually you can see here the top of the, these are the top of the eyes. So that's the face here. That's the back. This is your left side. This is your right side. And I'm going to bring your attention to this part of the brain where you see that there is a lot of spaces, like this big space here, some of these spaces here, as compared to that side of the brain. So this is the right, this is the left. This is part of the parietal lobe, which I showed you earlier, but it's a little bit lower, and um, it is where we are processing uh, some of these sounds of, of language, and this is the reason why these patients struggle. All righty. So the last variant we're going to talk about today, but not the least, is the, the executive syndrome or the frontal syndrome. And so this is a variant that, that also occurs at earlier age, and it affects the front part of the brain, uh, which we haven't talked about yet. So the front part of the brain is responsible for a lot of really important day-to-day -day things. You know, it is, it, I think of it as the CEO of our brain. You know, it is little guys sitting there making decisions, you know, allowing us to to know what we want to do today, plan our day, execute that plan, um, motivate us in order to sort of go, go, go ahead with our plan. It motivated all of you to come here today and listen to this lecture um, and helps us organize, etc. So when it is affected by Alzheimer's disease, then people start losing this capacity and they might start having difficulty with problem solving. Maybe they were always good at mechanics and they stopped knowing how to do that. You know, maybe they had, they tended to their garden and knew how to organize it and stop doing that. A lot of people, it can come up, show up at work because remember these are people that could be younger in their fifties. And so oftentimes they are still working and they may start making errors or uh, judgment uh, uh, problems at work. Um, it, it, because the front part of the brain uh, is, yes, we have a question. So the question is whether this is referred to as frontotemporal dementia. Um, it, not necessarily. It can, depending on how it presents itself. So frontotemporal dementia is another um, syndrome that describes, it has a particular criteria about uh, what patients present with. Um, and I think it's going to be talked about in the next lecture after this one. But uh, it, it, this may be called frontotemporal dementia as a syndrome if the primary uh, presentation is that of a behavioral change, but then the, the cause of it would still be Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's a great question to segue into uh, the next thought, which is because the front part of the brain, in addition to being sort of the decision maker and the, the executive processor, you know, it, it is also the part of the brain that is helping us select the best behavior in any particular social setting that we are in. Um, if you think about social situations, um, you could be in a very in a very professional situation, or in a family situation, or you could be out with friends having drinks. And if the same scenario or the same conversation happen in each one of these three situations, you might respond differently because you're in a different space. Maybe you're having fun at night with your friends, but you know, with your boss, you have to like take things seriously. So, so the, the front part of the brain is is what is allowing us to process all the time what's coming at us uh, uh, from from the environment and be able to select what is, what is the best way to behave right now given 
uh, the setting that I am in. And so patients may start having difficulty with knowing what to do from a social perspective, and a lot of them become either inappropriate in social setting or disinhibited, etc. And again, over time, this, uh, this condition progresses to involve also other cognitive domains like memory, language, and visual, uh, as we saw previously. All righty. So um, I'm going to move next to talk a little bit about the neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease or what is happening inside the brain. Okay, so we talked about how it manifests itself, and now we're going to try and take a dive into the pathology. So the hallmark, as we, as we saw in that first story I told you about Alzheimer's, um, is, is the presence of two main findings, one called amyloid plaques, and the other called neurofibrillary tangles that are made of a protein called tau. And let's take a deep dive into the brain to sort of understand better what that means. So on our brain cells, we all have this molecule called the amyloid precursor protein. And, and the amyloid precursor protein, we're not quite sure what these do, but we know that when it is um, snipped in ways to, to, to cause what we call beta amyloid, which is the smaller sort of yellow portion that you see on the screen here. These beta amyloids can aggregate together and form what we call a beta amyloid plaque. Um, and um, the beta amyloid plaque can come in two forms, either what we call diffuse plaques, like what you see on here, all of these uh, 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 spots, or what we call a neuritic plaque. And, and both, both of these are outside a brain cell because it's being, this is the brain cell, it's being clipped, and outside of it, we are having all of these aggregate together. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I really want to thank Dr. Leah Grimberg, who's going to be joining us later today as a moderator. Um, you know, she, she provides us with a lot of these nice pictures and images in order to talk about pathology, and she knows way more than I do about this. So if I make an Irish, I'm sure that she'll be able to clarify that afterwards. Um, so this is the amyloid protein part of Alzheimer's disease. And then there's another part of Alzheimer's disease, which is related to another protein called tau. And tau is a protein that is usually part of the architecture of a cell. So any, any cell in our body, and, and specifically our brain cells, sort of are made of a skeleton. And that skeleton that sort of holds the cell together is made of proteins that are called tau. And they sort of like come together in order to make these, these tubules like here to like make the skeleton of the cell. However, at times when some things go wrong inside the cell, which we are not quite sure what that something is, the proteins, um, uh, the, the tau proteins may become hyperphosphorylated, meaning they have too much phosphorus attached to them, and they are unable to form these really nice tubules. And then instead they aggregate uh, together and, and form um, this unwanted sort of part of the cell. And um, I will show you here on this scan. So this is a neurofibrillary tangle here or here you can see it in black. And these are actually inside a brain cell because they are, the tau protein is supposed to be inside to form the skeleton, and then when it's unable to do that, it aggregates inside the cell and causes, uh, contributes to causing uh, brain cells to, um, to die as time goes by. So Alzheimer's disease is the term that we use to describe the specific neurodegenerative disease of the brain that is associated with progressive accumulation of these amyloid plaques 
and the tau tangles that over time they lead to irreversible degeneration of neurons, meaning that neurons die as time goes by. All right, there are different ways in which we, we um, can stage um, Alzheimer's disease from a pathology perspective. And let me actually start with the beta-amyloid staging. So we had talked about these two different types of amyloid, the diffuse deposits and then the neuritic plaques. And then there are two different ways in which pathologists look at a brain and decide um, as, as to how, how much uh, of amyloid plaque there is or what is the distribution of it. Um, and so down here you see different ways of sort of staging by distribution of the diffuse and the neuritic plaques inside the brain. And so, you know, phases one to five inform us about where in the brain these um, amyloid plaques are being found. This is another uh, scheme by which we can sort of quantify, and it's, and it's by looking just at the neuritic plaques and see how dense they are on any one microscope slice. So you can see, for example, here there's nothing, but also I think I'm cheating. This is just a blank square. This is not actually from, <laughs> from a patient. Uh, but then this is when they are sparse. So you see a few of them, but they're not too many. This is moderate where you see a little bit more, and this is frequent where you see a lot more in a slide. And so these are two ways in which we quantify uh, the amyloid presence in the, in the brain. Yes? Correct. This is all on autopsy. And occasionally, very, very rarely, patients get a biopsy of their brain because people aren't quite sure what's going on and they think, you know, this might be a good diagnostic way and we sometimes find it on biopsy. But most, most of this are, uh, is on autopsy, correct. And regarding the, the tau uh, staging, tau seems to have um, a, a much more um, a predictable way in which it spreads in the brain. And it seems to always start... Um, close to the hippocampus in this region called transenterinal region. You don't need to remember that. Um, some, of, some of us don't even remember that <laughs> at times. Um, and, then, and then it starts spreading from there to the hippocampus and then involves more of the hippocampus or, and of that part of the brain called the temporal lobe. And then as it spreads more to the cortex and involves different cortices, it, it becomes more and more widespread in the brain. And so every one of these has a stage which was first described by, by, by Brock and Brock. And so we call this a Brock staging uh, of the tau presence in the brain. And, and it, the, the more the Brock staging in the brain, sort of the more diffuse um, the tau tangles are, and usually this correlates with severity of the symptoms. So the more, the, the more tau you have, the more symptoms you have. But the accumulation of the amyloid does not always necessarily correlate with the severity of the symptoms. Go, yes? And the question was, as this moves from one stage to the other, is there anything that we are that is being done uh, for, for patients that have this. Unfortunately, we have not yet scientifically found how we can stop this disease from spreading. And we do not currently have um, medications that have been shown to halt it in its place. There are several experimental medications, some of which have been, uh, are being, have been tested for the past decade uh, to try and uh, clear the amyloid plaques from the brain. And, and so far, we have gotten 
uh, non-favorable results. Uh, and, and some patients, we were able to demonstrate that the amyloid plaque has been removed, but that wasn't paralleled by an improvement in disease or a stopping of the progression. Um, and there may be other factors that we still don't understand or know about this. And there are other current medications also that are trying to clear the tau tangle from the cells and see if we can sort of stop that from continuing to form. But this is also still under experimentation, and we're not quite sure uh, where we're going to go. So, But we're hoping that as we learn more and more about the biology of this and how it spreads from cell to cell and how it forms in the first place, that we'll be able to have more targeted medications to try and halt this process or even reverse it if we can. Yeah. All right. So, um, so we talked about the pathology. We talked about the manifestation. And let me talk a little bit about the genetics of Alzheimer's disease uh, before we dive in into um, ways in which we can detect it in, in our current day and age. Um, so Alzheimer's disease is actually rarely caused by a single gene variant. Um, this is a, a, what we call a pie chart, so it's kind of like a pie, and we're, we're you know slicing it. And what you see in orange here is all the cases of people with Alzheimer's disease that we call sporadic, meaning that they presented to us with no family history of, of Alzheimer's disease whatsoever. And this is the majority, 75% of people. And then in purple, you see the, the part of the slice of patients with Alzheimer's disease uh, that presented to us with, with familial Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but this is also defined as Alzheimer's disease in people who have two or three relatives with Alzheimer's disease. But they don't necessarily have a dominant gene, meaning a gene that if you were to have it, you have the disease, no question. These are a very a very small portion of the pie in green here. You can barely see it. They are less than 1%. And um, here you can see better the number. So 75% of patients with sporadic, no family history of Alzheimer's disease, 24% of patients with familiar, having two or more relatives, uh, with Alzheimer's disease, and less than 1% of patients have an autosomal dominant genetically transmitted uh, Alzheimer's disease. And out of these less than 1%, the majority have a gene called presenilin 1, 65%. The second group have a gene called APP, it stands for amyloid precursor protein. And, and the, a rare group have a, have a gene called presenilin 2. And I'll talk in detail about, about some of these genes. So presenilin 1 occurs on chromosome number 14. So all of us have uh, uh, 23 pairs of chromosomes in every cell of our body. And these chromosomes really contain in them the entire code of, of who we are, you know, internally, on the outside, everything. You know, it is, it is the genetics that dictates um, everything about us. And every different cell in our body express sometimes different parts of these 23 chromosomes. So you can imagine a skin cell is very different than a cell in the heart, than a cell in the brain. And so these three cells have the same 23 chromosomes with all the codes. However, they are expressing different parts of them to become these different cells in the body. Uh, so presenal one is on chromosome 14. When patients have it, they can present with Alzheimer's disease uh, at a fairly young age, usually the onset is between the age of 25 and 60, with the average uh, uh, age is for, uh, around the age of 40. Uh, the symptoms can be quite different than what we just talked about. So it's not just memory problems, but people can have Parkinson-like movement problems, ataxia, which means incoordination in their movement, 
they can have behavioral changes. Um, it, and of course, it's caused the, the, the mutation causes buildup of amyloid beta in our brain cells, and this is what causes the disease. And there are a few founder variants, meaning that these are the places in the world where we have found families that have this gene. And so you see that it's really in very specific parts of the world um, uh, that this gene is present. The presenilin-2, remember, is extremely rare. So the majority of cases are presenilin-1 or APP. This is extremely rare. And it is present on chromosome 1. And again, the onset is young, between 40 to 75 years of age, with the mean of 50. And it mostly occurs in people with German, Italian, and Spanish descent, and again leads to buildup of amyloid protein. And the amyloid precursor protein, uh, which is the second most common gene, is on chromosome 21. And, you know, f for those of you who, who know this, um, down, people with Down syndrome who have trisomy 21, this is that chromosome, you know, they have three copies of that chromosome instead of the regular two that, that all of us have. And, and somewhere, because of the three copies, they are at a very highly increased risk of developing, developing Alzheimer's disease. In fact, people with trisomy 21, the majority of them, if not all of them, if they live long enough, you know, they will develop Alzheimer's disease. Um, and again, this is caused by buildup of amyloid beta as well. Here. Yes, sorry, I can't see you. Go ahead. So the question was, what is being done about the, the families that have this in terms of trying to understand better this, this disease? And uh, uh, there are studies that are looking at uh, understanding better the biology, of course, but also you know trying to look at treatment in this population because what is unique about this population is that we know they're going to get Alzheimer's disease if they have the gene. So even when they are young and have no symptoms and have no buildup in their brain, we already know that this is going to lead to that. So this this is a great group of people in whom we can, if we find a good drug that can. Um, stop or even prevent Alzheimer's disease from happening in the first place. This is a good group of people in whom to test this. And, and uh, I, I am aware of a couple studies that are looking at that. Um, I don't think that there is any um, um, results yet that are translatable to our community, but hopefully we will have more information as time goes by. Thank you. Of course. <clears throat> and before we move on from this, I would like to talk a little bit about um, apolipoprotein E, or APOE, which some of you might have heard of, and a lot of people now in the day and age of 23andMe, they are getting their genetic testing done sort of on their own with various private companies, and they are getting results of whether or not they are, quote-unquote, at risk for things like Alzheimer's disease. So apolipoprotein E is... Um, um, is a gene that has three major different forms. And you have two copies of it because we all have, like I said, a pair of chromosomes. And so you can either have, uh, you can have two of any of these three forms, the E2, E3, and E4. And E2 is considered to be protective against Alzheimer's disease. E3 is considered to be neutral. It doesn't necessarily do anything. And E4 is considered to confer risk on patients who have it to, to develop Alzheimer's disease. None of these is, is causative. So, so you, do not, you do not need APOE4 to have Alzheimer's disease. And also having APOE4 does not mean that you will develop Alzheimer's disease. So this is not a cause. It just increases the likelihood or the risk that you may develop it given maybe other factor. Uh, having E4 
may mean that you develop Alzheimer's disease earlier in life than people who don't have the APOE4. But like I said, it's not necessary or sufficient for the disease. And we actually, medically speaking, do not recommend for people to get their APOE4 gene testing and know what their status is because we may not have any recommendations to give you one way or another. Um, so this is just showing what the majority of people have. And as you can see, most everybody in the world has a E3, E3, so two E3, 61% um, of people. Uh, about 25% have at least one APOE4 or two. And then the rest, they have like E2 or E2, E3. Um, and this is just to show you the risk of Alzheimer's disease um, this is the risk if we don't look at genotyping whatsoever. So it's about 10 to 11% in men and 14 to 70% in women. This is lifetime risk, so at all ages. Um, having E2, as you can see, can be protective. So the, so the risk becomes less, 4 to 5% or 6 to 8% in women. Having E3 is kind of neutral, so it doesn't really change the percentage that much. But when you start having E4, that's when the percentages increase both in men and women. So in general, one, one, one E4 copy is associated with an 18 to 35% lifetime risk of Alzheimer's disease, and two E4 copies are associated with 31 to 40% of lifetime risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and, and before I move on from this, I just want to th thank our genetic counselor, Jamie Fong, you know, who does a lot of great work with this, and she actually provided me with most of the information on these slides. So I just want to say thank you to her. Alrighty, so we talked about how it presents, we talked about what it looks like in the brain, we talked about some genetic factors that can affect it. Let's finish by talking about, well, how can we detect or be more confident about Alzheimer's disease um, when, when, you know, when we are still alive and we're not doing an autopsy? Um, so in our day and age, we have biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease, which are kind of like a proof of evidence of how I like to think about it. Um, having a biomarker that is quote-unquote positive uh, increases the certainty that whatever syndrome you're seeing, so the memory problem or the visual problem or the language problem, is indeed being caused by Alzheimer's disease. And uh, biomarkers fall into, well, three categories. Um, uh, there are biomarkers for amyloid deposition, where we can detect whether there is amyloid pathology. And these come in two forms, which I'm going to talk about. One is measuring the amyloid protein levels in the fluid that is around the brain and our spine. If you can imagine, at all times, our brain and our spine are actually floating inside a cavity in our brain that is filled with a fluid and this fluid is called cerebrospinal fluid because we're not very creative. Um, and, and that cavity extends from, from the skull all the way down to the spine. Um, and people here who have gotten or have seen people got an epidural uh, know uh, this is what a spinal tap is. And I'll show you in a little bit some images about that. But this is where we get that fluid from. And we can test it for amyloid markers. And I'll show you a little bit what, what the findings might be. Or another technique for amyloid is, is doing a PET scan, which I'll describe in a little bit, and, and checking whether there are amyloid plaques or amyloid depositions in the brain. The second biomarker, which is sort of really state-of-the-art and is still under investigation, uh, but it's really promising, is a PET scan for, the, for tau protein. And it's a PET scan that can, can allow us 
to visualize uh, or to see a biomarker of tau depositions in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's disease. And then the third type of biomarker is really biomarker of neuronal injury, meaning that it may not necessarily be specific to Alzheimer's disease in the sense that it's not showing us the amyloid plaques, evidence for that, or the tau tangles, but it is telling us that brain cells are dying. And, and we can see this, again, in cerebrospinal fluid, or what we call CSF, and I'll show you in a little bit, or uh, on an MRI, like what I showed you earlier, a scan of the brain, or in a PET scan uh, that is being done uh, with just sugar to see how the, how the brain is eating and utilizing sugar. And we'll talk about all of these things. All right, so let's start with the cerebrospinal fluid of truth, is, is what I call it. Um, so this is how a lumbar puncture is done. So we go with a needle in the lower back of a person after, of course, we've cleaned it really well and we've given them an anesthetic so that they don't feel the pain. And we go in the space that is... Um, so this is the, the, the your vertebral uh, bones, and then they are there to protect that cavity that is filled with that fluid and that the spine is in. Now, where we go in the needle... The spine has already sort of ended, but there are nerves sort of going down. So we, we're, we're not at risk to injure this, the, the spinal cord that is extending from the brain. But we just want to get to that cavity in order to get the fluid. And that fluid is in continuum with the fluid around the brain. So it's really the same. It's one pool, and, it, and the fluid is all the time sort of passing through this entire pool. So it contains information that are also uh, um, important to the brain. And when, once we get this fluid, we send it to the lab, and it comes back with a report where they show us the levels of the amyloid protein in, the, in, in that fluid and the tau protein in the fluid. Now, this may not make a lot of sense, but bear with me. If the amyloid protein is low in the CSF fluid, this is the marker for Alzheimer's disease. And we don't quite understand this biology really well, you know, but sort of the way that I try to think about it to sort of make sense uh, of it is that if the if the amyloid is forming the plaque, then not enough of it is circulating in the fluid for us to detect it. So 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 keep that in mind. You know, the if the amyloid level is low, then this is a biomarker of Alzheimer's disease. And if the tau level is high, this is a biomarker of neuronal loss. So it's not a biomarker of tau deposition necessarily. It doesn't necessarily tell you that there is tau tangles in the brain, but it tells you that brain cells are dying. And as they're dying, they are exploding and, and putting all that tau protein in the fluid. And this is what we are picking up. Okay. And what's, what's really nice about doing a spinal tap or a lumbar puncture is that we can also measure for other things that, that sometimes may be causing memory problems and aren't Alzheimer's disease, like inflammations in the brain, infections in the brain, tumors, lymphomas, things like that. You know, so getting a sample of the fluid allows us to test for other things that aren't Alzheimer's disease. And that's, um, that's always you know, nice and it complements the workup. Now let's talk a little bit about the PET scan. And I want to really thank Renaud Lajoie, who you're going to meet in a, in a little bit. He's going to be part of our panel as well, because he gave me all of these slides and you know, is way more eloquent than I am. But I'm going to try to do a good job explaining this. So um, a, a PET scan stands for positron emission topography. And so it's, it's, a, it's a complicated process that we're going to try to simplify. Basically, we have 
a certain material, whatever it is that we want, that we tag uh, with a substance that's radioactive. So something that's radioactive is sort of all the time sort of emitting um, a positron, which are you know just little like nuclear molecules. And then we inject the blood with that substance. And then that substance goes through the bloodstream and reaches our brain because it's in the blood, you know, and our brain is receiving blood all the time from the heart. And then depending on what we tagged it with, uh, it will go to places in the brain. So, for example, if we put a piece that fits onto the amyloid plaque and then we tag that piece with something radioactive the piece will go to the amyloid plaque and then will emit the positron and then that complicated machine will detect the positron and say, uh-huh, you know, I see that, you know, this, this molecule that you tagged is hanging out in the brain. Whereas if there's nothing in the brain, it's going to pass through the blood, go to the brain, find nothing to latch onto, then be cleared, and then we take an image and nothing's going to happen. We're not going to get any positron. Does that make sense? Great. <laughs> um, so it, it really depends on what you, what you injected with. So we call, we call the thing we injected with a tracer because it's really like going and trying to latch onto the thing that sort of like looks like it. So you could have an amyloid tracer or a tau tracer, or we see in a little bit, you know, we, we could just have sugar that is being traced and tagged with, uh, um, with a radioactive material. All right. So when we use an amyloid tracer... Um, here's what happens. So it goes to the brain. If there is amyloid, it will latch on to the amyloid, and then we're able to detect that. On the top part here, you see a, a PET scan, an amyloid PET scan of a patient that doesn't have Alzheimer's disease. And, and if, you, if you look at the colors, anything that's sort of like dark or blue means that nothing what, was taken up. So there's a really low uptake of the tracer, okay? And then the more you sort of go in the colors of like yellow, orange, and red, then there's really high uptake. So this is a patient that does not have Alzheimer's disease. Notice that there's a little bit of uptake here in what we call the white matter of the brain. The white matter of the brain is usually on the inside, not on the surface. And the best way to think about it is it's all the wires that is connecting different brain cells to each other, as opposed to the surface of the brain where most of the brain cells live. And then down here, you see the scan of a person who has Alzheimer's disease. And you can notice the huge difference between the two, where now there's a lot of uptake. And you don't see any differentiation anymore between the white matter that's on the inside and the gray matter that's on the outside. And so the entire scan sort of is, is what we call hot. You know, it's, there's really, really high signal. And this is because that tracer went and latched onto all the amyloid plaques and is giving out all these signals. Uh, and, and this is just to show you the correlation of the amyloid um, uh, PET scan with um, actual autopsy results. So this has been done on 179 patients who died three years after they got a PET scan, and then we did autopsy on their brains. And, and notice how the PET scan starts detecting a signal as early as, uh, remember earlier I showed you this different phases, so for the tall phase, as early as sort of phase three, maybe even with two, we start seeing a signal, but really three, four, five. And then for the CIRAT score, when it's moderate and frequent, it, it, the PET scan is really detecting it. So it's, it's really faithful and correlates really well with autopsy. So it's a, it's a, a very specific um, um, way to detect amyloid plaques in the brain. 
Now, the tau pet is a similar concept where instead of the tracer latching onto the amyloid plaque, it's going to latch onto the, the tau protein. And, and this is still not as um, well refined as the amyloid PET scan, and it's still being under investigation because we are finding other molecules in the brain that the, what we're calling the tau tracer is latching onto. So the tau tracer doesn't seem to be right now you know, as specific to the tau protein, but it's latching onto other things. However, in Alzheimer's disease, it is actually incredibly specific, and that's primarily because there's a really high signal of tau in the parts of the brain that are affected by Alzheimer's disease that I showed you earlier, the hippocampus, the seahorse, the parietal lobes, the temporal lobe, etc. So um, it's still being refined, but it's a very promising uh, technique. Uh, and what's really nice about it is that tau does correlate with symptoms, as we talked about earlier. So I think it's going to provide a really great insight once it is very well refined about sort of where we are in the disease stages. All right, and finally, this is a PET scan uh, that is, when people just say PET scan, usually that's what they mean. And a lot of people might be familiar with PET scan from like the cancer world or other, uh, other medical fields. Um, and so this is a PET scan um, that we call FDG PET scan. Um, it's basically a molecules of sugars that are tagged radioactively. And what we are looking for is how different cells in the body, and in this situation, brain cells, are eating up the sugar. And so healthy cells should be eating the sugar really well because they're taking blood and they are sort of feeding off the blood. Um, and so we are supposed to see high signal, as you see here in a clinically normal uh, person, you know, you see... Um, high signal all throughout, and it's it's hot all around because we kind of want it that way. You know, we want it, we want the sugar to be sort of utilized in the entire brain. And then for somebody who has Alzheimer's disease that may have lost brain cells in these areas, so that's sort of the temporal lobe here, parietal lobe there. You see that you start losing that nice signal here. It, it it's not being there's no uptake as much as in the other parts of the brain, and that's because the cells are not functioning well enough to sort of take take up the sugar. So that's another way in which we can detect injury, but this is not specific to either amyloid protein or the tau protein. All right. So um, to summarize, so here are the, the, the few things to hopefully remember from all of this if you don't remember anything else. The, the neuropathologic hallmark of Alzheimer's disease is accumulation of amyloid and tau protein inside the brain. Alzheimer's disease can lead to significantly different clinical syndromes, and patients can go through distinct stages from silent disease or asymptomatic to mild cognitive impairment to dementia. Not all patients with mild cognitive impairment or dementia necessarily have Alzheimer's disease. Less than 1% of the cases really are genetically dominant, and then there are modern biomarkers that can improve the accuracy of our diagnosis, but Currently, the autopsy remains the gold standard of sort of confirming uh, the disease. So thank you so much. I really want to acknowledge all these people who helped me put this talk together. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. So now we're going to open up the space for some questions. And today we have uh, two guests. We have Dr. Leah Grin Grinberg as I said before, is uh, co-leads our neuropathology course, so she would be the person to ask questions around neuropathology. Um, we also have Renaud, Renaud Lajoie, is that correct? Lajoie? <laughs> Good. <laughs> I think I didn't say it correctly last time. 
um, who's a neuroscientist in our memory and aging center and is, is, is focused on doing research on the biomarkers, especially the pet biomarkers. So he would be the right question to, the right person to ask all the questions around pets. And then clinical questions to our, our colleague, Dr. Nassan. So the last time I started with questions in the front row and went back row by row. Maybe today we can start with the back row and go to the front. And to kick off the questions, maybe I have two questions uh, to get the engines going. Um, maybe the first one would be for Renaud. Um, so maybe you can help us understand the difference between the sensitivity and the specificity of tests and how that uh, pertains to PET scans and you know, within the context of AD and, and then what are the limitations basically of these PET scans. Um, thank you for the question and thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be uh, speaking in front of you today. Uh, and addressing some questions. Uh, you saw nice images, and I'm trying to talk a little bit about what can be complicated about um, using these images. So um, you mentioned sensitivity and specificities. Uh, these are two terms that we use a lot in the biomedical field. Uh, they are like basically complementary uh, measures to kind of measure how good a test can be to detect a disease. And an ideal test would always detect the disease when it's present, and it, always, it would always tell you, oh, there's no disease when the disease is not there. But we know that no test in medicine is like this. So the sensitivity is very important. A sensitive, a sensitive test is a test that's going to actually tell you uh, when the disease is there. It's gonna, when, the, when the patient has a disease, the test is going to be positive. It's going to be, a, oh, there is something going on with this patient. So you want a test to be very positive, uh, very sensitive. But also, you want your test to be uh, very specific because the specificity is about um, being able to rule out the disease when there's no disease. So you also don't want a test that's going to be positive in everyone. You want it to only be positive when there's a disease. And so this is like the trade-off of any uh, uh, biomarker in medicine. And that's really a, a struggle for us to find uh, tests that are both sensitive and specific. And so um, I think George showed nice uh, data um, on M amyloid PET and comparing amyloid PET results to um, autopsy data, which is our gold standard. Um, and what I can tell you is that amyloid um, PET, amyloid imaging, is a pretty sensitive measure, and it's also very specific, meaning that when we have this signal on images, almost all the time it means there's amyloid in the brain. But amyloid PET is a great measure of amyloid plaques. And I think George made a very good point in explaining that Alzheimer's disease is not just amyloid, it's amyloid and tau. So actually we're having issues of a lot of people who can be um, cognitively normal and actually have amyloid in their brain. We've known that from pathology studies. We can see that now with imaging. But amyloid is not Alzheimer's disease. So the test itself, amyloid PET, is not very specific to Alzheimer's disease. It's specific to amyloid, and I hope this distinction is, is, is uh, very clear. Good. Great, and I have a question for Dr. Greenberg also to get, get us thinking about other questions that may come up. Um, we've presented so far, uh, you know, purposefully, a, a way of thinking of these diseases in a structured sort of simple way, but as you uh, and, and we know, there's far more complexities to this, right? So you that are seeing the brains um, sometimes stumble on a patient that has reached autopsy, for example, that has been 
characterized clinically as having one of the variants of Alzheimer's disease, but when you look inside of the brain, you may find that there isn't real evidence of Alzheimer's disease. So I want you to talk a little bit about this dissociation that sometimes happens, where a clinical syndrome looks to be, you know, pointing towards Alzheimer's disease, but we find a different pathology. And that's because that's something that my colleague next week is going to expand a little bit more about. And what does that mean to you? And how much does the history matter in your evaluation as a neuropathologist? Okay, so I will start saying uh, good evening to everybody and thank you for coming here. It's really a pleasure to be talking to you. And uh, this is a very, very relevant question. We uh, pathologists, we have this joke that we are always right, but we are always late. <laughs> and <laughs> most of our research uh, revolves around of uh, not only learning what is the process going on in the brain when someone develops dementia, but what we can do to be better in predicting what is causing dementia in living patients so we will be able to treat. And uh, because of this kind of studies, we uh, also cause a lot of confusion because the more we learn, we change the naming, the nomenclature. So if you've been here three years ago, probably you are hearing something slightly different uh, this time because we are evolving very quickly. And one of the things that it's very uh, clear when we do this kind of studies in which we have the opportunity to contrast what we see in the brain with the clinical history is that we have a lot of uh, patients uh, that will come to our clinics and they we say they fit the bill for Alzheimer's disease. They start having memory problems and they evolve uh, in the way we see, uh, we associate with Alzheimer's disease, but actually when we look at the brain, they have something different. So what are these things that can cause something that's very similar to Alzheimer's disease? The first one of them, and uh, I think it's very important because it's very prevalent and we don't talk a lot about it, is uh, what we call vascular dementia. So in the same way that when our vessels are not good and we have heart problems, we also have brain problems. And these brain problems, they uh, look a lot like Alzheimer's disease. In most of the people, they will have a combination of uh, plaques and tangles and these uh, vascular changes in the brain. And the more we put these things together, the worse it is. So uh, everything we can do to prevent uh, vessel problems, uh, uh, blood vessel problems, it will help the brain. So this is the first thing. And the second thing that's becoming more evident from us, and we have been learning this a lot in the news about these athletes, especially football players, they have what they call this repetitive uh, brain injury. And this leads many years later to a disease that we call chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Have you ever heard about a very complicated CTE. name? And we have been learning that people that had uh, brain trauma, not as severe as these uh, football players, uh, maybe, you know, because they, had, they were in car accidents in the time we did the new safety bell, or, you know, they were even in uh, amateur uh, sports that they would have some uh, kicks in their head. It might predispose to uh, dementia later on, in a way that looks very much like Alzheimer's disease clinically. So it opens to us a lot of opportunities because both of the conditions I told you about, they are preventable in a way. Mm -hmm. So uh, we feel that only by uh, preventing these two diseases, we can lower the uh, incidence of uh, dementia by a lot. 
So I hope it answers. Thank you so much for these insightful responses. And also, one of the sessions that we have in the future is going to touch on prevention as well. So I thought maybe we can start with the last row and go in order. Some questions in the last row? Yes, sir. Great question. The question is, what is it about these regions of the brain that makes them uh, have a predisposition for Alzheimer's pathology? Who wants to take that question? It's an area of research. I'll say I, I, that. I can take that question. Uh, this is, a, I think, one of the most important questions that we are trying to solve nowadays. We call this phenomenon selective vulnerability. And the question is, why some neurons in the brain, they are more vulnerable to a disease and other they are resistant to the disease? And uh, the truth is that we don't know very well. So what are we doing to find out? So the first step is really to map, to understand what's going on, to uh, identify which are the neurons that are more vulnerable and which are the neurons that are less vulnerable. And this seems relatively simple, but it's not. And the reason for this is because one of the only ways we can do it is by doing post-mortem studies. Because imaging, although it's getting better and better each day, it doesn't have the resolution yet to see single cells. And most of the uh, uh, brains that uh, come uh, you know, to our hands to research, they are donated by uh, research participants that uh, will enroll in a memory clinic. So they already are very sick by the time the brain gets to us. So uh, it, it, it's very difficult to really understand early stages of the disease. But we do have some of these brains. And then uh, with these brains, we map. Uh, which cells uh, go first. And uh, in the past, we used to do biochemical studies, uh, immunohistochemical studies to understand what they have. But now we have much better tools. For instance, one thing uh, we are using nowadays, it's called single nucleus RNA sequencing. So we can nowadays uh, put barcodes in each one of the cells we are studying and then do genetic studies or uh, any other kind of biochemical studies and understand what is coming from each one of these cells. So by doing this, we, we are comparing uh, what are the difference from these vulnerable cells to these no vulnerable cells, because uh, the idea is to create treatments that can create a shield in the vulnerable cells so they won't be susceptible to the disease. Great. I will just add briefly, and I learn something new every time I listen to Leia talk, so <laughs> thank you. Uh, I will just add briefly that, you know, there is progressively more evidence, which is still at the infancy stage. Like, I think there is more work to do to, to demonstrate that. But people are starting to see that sometimes when uh, patients develop the syndromes that aren't the memory syndromes, like, say, the language syndrome, there is a portion of these people that have all their life had some sort of a language problem. Maybe they had dyslexia when they were younger, maybe not. And that doesn't mean that people with dyslexia will develop as MDs, but, but um, it seems like they are represented in that population in a much higher frequency than you would expect just by chance. Same for people who have the visual syndrome. There has been some mild evidence that sort of remains to be proven that they may have had some like eye injury or some eyesight problem or something that sort of led to that region of the brain being weaker or more vulnerable. And so when the disease does hit for whatever reason that we don't understand, it is hitting these parts of the brain first as opposed to the hippocampus, which is what we think of as maybe the default part that should be hit by Alzheimer's disease. 
Yes. Uh, oh, go actually, ahead. just one last word about this. Uh, I didn't think about it until you started to talk uh, about um, uh, differences between people and some factors that can make some people more vulnerable. I think uh, George mentioned um, this gene that is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, APOE, uh, especially the APOE4 form of the gene. And we know that it's not just a random risk factor for the disease, it's a risk factor specifically or more strongly for the amnestic form of the disease. And when you look at patients with the, the language variant or the visual-spatial variant, actually they don't have that gene so much. So we think that the gene, APOE4, it really uh, makes your brain more vulnerable to Alzheimer's disease, but especially this like hippocampus uh, system and this amnestic form of the disease. So I think there's a, there's a mix of genetic uh, um, factors in, in, in the process. I think we have a question in the back, uh, a lady in the back. Yeah. Yes. Uh, great question. The question is if at the very last stage of dementia, do all syndromes develop? And maybe Dr. Nassan can address how the disease changes as dementia advances. Yeah, this is a very important question, and I think a really difficult one to answer for, for many reasons, and I'll say why. But, you know, a long time ago when I was a medical student and learning about this, I think people thought that, yeah, as dementia progresses, all dementias will eventually look the same because they're going to affect, you know, the entire part of the brain. But I don't know necessarily that we see this, and, and Leah can talk more about sort of the pathology, but um, I, I think what happens is that the parts of the brain that are the most affected become... If affected enough that you might not be able to see anymore if the other areas are still active or not. And let me give you an example, which I think we mentioned briefly for the language. If somebody is having a language problem and that gets advanced enough that they are mute or unable to communicate, we're never going to know whether this disease progressed to affect memory or not because there's no way that we're going to be able to ask them to remember something because they can't communicate. Um, same if somebody can't see things, can you know, leave the room, can do something. It, it might be difficult to think, well, gee, are they doing this because they cannot find their way or is this a behavioral problem? So I think the symptoms start clouding each other as the disease progress. And, and I do think that as we become more specific about diagnosing these, we need to be careful to provide the um, um, correct matched support for patients having in mind what is the predominant symptoms that they have and taking that in mind. And I guess, do you want to talk about pathology also? Or? So thank you for your question. Even at early stages of the disease, uh, it's not that the whole brain is affected. Uh, we still have uh, many areas of the brain that are preserved. In the case of Alzheimer's disease, it's a very long disease because uh, the areas of the brain that are important for our survival get affected very late in the disease. But then, uh, even at this point, uh, we don't see these areas affected. And just to make a contrast, this is the complete opposed to uh, the Lou Gehrig disease, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, because in this disease, the areas that we need to survive for breathing and motor control, they are affected very early. So, uh, unfortunately, the, the person will pass uh, because of this, even with all the cognition uh, still doing very well. So, depends on the area, and uh, even at late stages, it, it won't take the whole brain. So, let me just uh, add to this and, and sort of summarize the concept, which I think is an important concept we have to keep in mind throughout the series, that these diseases, like I explained in the, in the first lecture, are focal in onset, 
meaning that there's certain, like uh, Dr. Greenberg just explained, certain areas that are affected earlier, and therefore we, if we see patients early, we can pick up on the signs and symptoms that take us to that region of the brain and then make us think of what is the pathology that may be getting there. But as the patients advance in their disease, um, these substrates, these proteinopathies, they will travel to different regions of the brain or expand, um, and therefore the clinical syndrome will change. And therefore a person that begins with a just an amnestic presentation, over time will have language problems, will have visual problems. And if they live long enough with this disease, then as you just heard, that disease is going to start affecting those vital centers of the brain that control things like walking, swallowing, breathing, unfortunately. And this is, this is when things get complicated. Um, there's a next row. So yes, sir. So vascular dementia is a, a, a different cause of dementia. Um, I think what we were hearing about earlier is that what I was trying to introduce is the concept that oftentimes, especially the older the patient is, it's not always very clean, meaning that it's not like you only have Alzheimer's disease in your brain. Alzheimer's disease, as we advance in age, tends to be accompanied by vascular changes as well. So we would say this person had both Alzheimer's disease and vascular disease causing that person's dementia. Does that make sense? Uh, so in other words, AD is linked to vascular dementia? Is that what you're saying? I would say that's a fair statement, for, for especially for patients over what age, you would say, rough I think uh, uh, maybe the right statement based on evidence we have right now is that they are uh, so prevalent, both of them, they often, they happen together. There are some questions if they will feed each other, uh, you know, uh, synergistically. Uh, I, I don't think uh, we have super strong evidence to say yes or no, but certainly they are very prevalent, they work together. So we know that, uh, and this is from post-mortem studies, that it's very possible for someone to pass away with a lot of amyloid and tau in the brain without having any symptoms. However, it's not possible to see the same situation if the person on the top of it has also these uh, microvascular uh, changes in the brain. So if the brain structure is not doing well to start with because there is lack of oxygen, and no, it's the same situation for the heart. So the brain has more difficulties to uh, you know, overcome this accumulation of uh, proteins there. So, and again, mm. this is preventable in a way. Um, maybe over here, and then we'll move forward. Yes. So this we'll, we'll discuss more in a, in a subsequent session, but I can say that diabetes is recognized as one, as the, one of the risk factors of cognitive impairment late in life. Uh, there's many, it's an association, right? Uh, and we have some hypotheses as to why. One would be that diabetes leads to vascular changes in the brain, just like it does in the heart and in other parts of the body. Yes, sir, and then we'll move this way. Um, that's a great question. So the question is, how do we think about cerebrospinal fluid and why does it contain proteins in the first place that we are measuring? Um, so it's a fluid that, like any fluid in our body, is composed of different types of molecules and things. You know, like, for example, if you take a sample of your blood, in your blood you can measure various different things, you know, sodium level, potassium level, um, enzymes, etc. And so the cerebrospinal fluid is another type of fluid, you know, it's not blood, but it does 
contain a lot of information about the cells that are in the brain and in the spine. And um, it, it can contain, first of all, cells, like cells that are there to protect the brain. So if there's an infection, sometimes the number of cells will be really high in the fluid because they're all becoming to the rescue of the brain. Uh, it can contain blood. If you're bleeding somewhere, it will, it will sort of appear in the cerebrospinal fluid. And it can contain different types of proteins that if you're not measuring them, you won't know that they're there. But if you measure them, then you can know the level of them. And so one of them is amyloid. And so normally all of us, if we were to take a sample of everybody here from their cerebrospinal fluid, we will have an amyloid protein level. And it's usually pretty high in like the 800 is sort of the number, you know, um, and then if if that level the more that level decreases the more the likelihood that we have alzheimer's disease going on but you know uh, uh, or i guess i should correct and say amyloidosis going on meaning that there's like an a, a, some sort of amyloid protein process happening in the brain does that help frame that a little bit to the spinal fluid anymore. So this is how we understand it. This amyloid starts to uh, get uh, solid in a way and it deposits in these plaques. So there is less amyloid to go to the spinal fluid. With tau, is the opposite. Tau is inside the cell and starts killing the cell. So when the cell is killed, this tau is released. So you have an increase of tau in the spinal fluid. Okay, one question here and then we'll move to the next row. What do we know about Alzheimer's in other primates? Oh, maybe for Leah. <laughs> Alzheimer's is a human disease. What we have in primates, uh, in some of them we can have accumulation of amyloid uh, with not necessarily a, a cognitive decline. Uh, I had the opportunity once to examine a, a, a collection of very old chimpanzees. Uh, they were almost uh, over 40 years of age, which is very old for chimpanzees. And they only have tau in very specific structures of the brainstem, which is uh, this part of the brain that's in our neck. So they don't accumulate it. They don't accumulate also in rodents, uh, even the amyloid itself. So when we produce animal models to study Alzheimer's disease, we have to in an artificial way, add these proteins there because they don't occur naturally. But finally, dogs, they uh, accumulate amyloid and it causes them to get uh, blind when they get older. And some dogs, they also can get agitated because they are not seeing very well and uh, they get anxious and they can bite. So this happens to dogs a lot. Is it is it due to amyloid accumulating in cortical amyloid or ocular? It's uh, to amyloid accumulated especially in uh, the areas uh, 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 that control vision. Right. And actually in humans, we know that amyloid has this tendency to accumulate in vessels in the visual area too. So it's a vulnerable area for amyloid in dogs and humans. Oh, here? And we'll go down this way. Are, is there a synergistic effect between macular degeneration and Alzheimer's? Um, I don't think so. Not that we have um, very solid scientific evidence for. However, that being said, there is more and more studies being done on 
the retina and changes that happen in the retina that might reflect changes that are happening in the brain. In many ways, the eyes are just a part of the brain. So it's, it's an extension, the direct extension of the brain. And so there's, there's uh, a, a lot of theories that you know, changes that are occurring in the brain could be displayed or could affect the eyes. And there are, there's, there are other neurodegenerative diseases in which I think we are starting to have more evidence. So um, I don't know if you guys will talk about Lewy body disease in another session. Briefly, yes. Yeah, but uh, Lewy body disease is another type of neurodegenerative disease that causes brain cells to die as well. And can look like Alzheimer's disease at times. Um, and there's progressively some evidence that there are uh, changes in the retina that are very similar to the changes that we see in the brain uh, uh, in Lewy body disease. And so I think that um, this, is, this is something that hopefully we will learn more about as time goes by and more scientists look at that. All right. I think I've been alerted that we have time for one more question, maybe going down the road to be democratic. Um, so the question is, what's the association between hearing loss and the brain, and why are we treating hearing loss in the first place if, if that doesn't treat the brain? Um, I think having hearing loss may predispose some parts of the brain to be vulnerable to disease because they're not being stimulated by sound when you don't receive enough sound to process it inside the brain. And so in the same way that becoming blind might predispose the visual parts of the brain to... Um, to degenerate because they're not working, not hearing, you know, might predispose the hearing part of the brain to also degenerate. Uh, but that being said, uh, if you do have a few cells that are still working to try and understand language or what's happening in the environment, it would be great to help them by making sure that they are receiving clear sound and clear speech. So I think the hearing aid is... Uh, is important in a therapeutic way, and I do spend a lot of time in clinic, you know, trying to convince my patients why this is important. And I think it's exactly for that that even even if it's not necessarily treating the disease itself, whatever remaining brain cells you have that are really doing as much as they can to support your cognitive function, it would be great to not make them work even harder to like hear, but but allow allow them to receive the sound as clear as possible. Does that answer your question? Neuroplasticity, I have a science with any of our understandings of Alzheimer's. I mean, the brain cells are not, and the only half of them are now working on hearing. The other half could go do something else if we could just what's happening. Um, what do you think, Leah? Do you want to? Doubt uh, neurogenesis or neuroplasticity is something that's still very controversial. We don't know exactly how uh, it happens and if it happens. But uh, what we know is that uh, the neurons have the capacity to try to work harder, at least for a certain time, to overcome uh, uh, the disease, at least in early stages of the disease. So what we see biologically in Alzheimer's disease, for instance, is, is uh, when a region of the brain gets affected, instead of going down in terms of function, it goes up at least for some time, and uh, then, uh, you know, you cannot cope with this anymore. So in a way, it's a kind of plasticity, not more neurons, but certainly a higher functioning of uh, these neurons. But 
I think we have still a lot to learn about it. And again, one of the issues in studying this has to do with these difficulties in uh, getting to research uh, uh, individuals that don't have dementia, but they want to participate in this kind of research. And with that um, hint that we need volunteers, <laughs> it was great to have you. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.